again looking and listening to Jesus because so much about what we learn from him contradicts what we think about us. And Jesus pokes this relentlessly all through the Gospels because I hope you realize this giant contradiction that he brings us about who we really are. Not who we think we are, but who we really are is the wrecking ball that has to level our self-assessment structure that we're born with that whispers to us and even screams at times, you're not that bad. You're way ahead of other people. Look at her. Look at him. Aren't you glad you're not like them? And so in chapter 14 here, Jesus confronts big confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees who thought they were the spiritual elite, the green berets of righteousness because they were way ahead of everybody else. Why? Because they believed just like people still do today, that you have to earn God's favor by doing enough of the right things. And if you want to know what those right things are, watch them because they're doing it so well. Turn to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. And follow along as I begin reading in verse 1. Luke chapter 14, verse 1. I don't hear many pages. I hope you're swiping some little app in your lap. Because we're going to go to all kinds of passages today. And oh my goodness, we're going to use the Bible. We use the Bible in our church family. Bring a Bible. Bring a Bible. We're going to use it. Because I want you to learn what the Bible says. Not what Peter or Brian or Brad says. Bible. Luke chapter 14, verse 1. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees. These are not lawyers that are attorneys that help you with a car wreck. These were experts in the Old Testament law. They knew what the Bible says. Hold all my calls, please. To the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that's fallen into a well on a Sabbath will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Really, it should say, and they would not. He does this to them all the time. You'll find it all through the Gospels where he pins them into a place with a question that's going to make them look so bad if they answer. So they'll just choose to not answer. And so now he does what he so often does when he realizes, oh, you are so not thinking what you should be thinking. He tells a parable. Now he told a parable to those who were invited. So what he's doing is he's throwing the net out wider. Pastor Peter led us into the first few verses last week, and it's, it's a jousting time with him and the religious leaders. But now he wants to say something to every single person in the room because what he's about to teach you guys applies to every human being alive. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, "Uh, give place to this person, and then you'll begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, Move up higher, then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with him. Here's what's going on. In that day, they would have seating that was shaped like a U, and the host, the head of this thing, is right here, and everybody else is lined up, and there weren't place name, name places like at weddings today. And it was understood. You had to think through, is there anybody else more important than me coming? Because it was an honor to be closest to the host. But who do you think the most important people, what do they do? They usually come late to make a big entrance. So you had to play this game of thinking, do I think there's going to be anybody else that's more important than me? I don't know. 
I got to think this through where I put myself. But human nature and heart being what it is, we always assume probably nobody more important than me. I'll take it. I'll take the risk. This is the game they were playing, and they played it all the time at every dinner or banquet or wedding. Verse 11. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. So what does Jesus expose and debunk and make absolutely clear to us in this passage? Well, here's the first point, number one. Oh, get this. Your view of you will determine what you do with Jesus. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. Jesus is who he is. You don't get to shape him or make him into whatever you want. But I want you to understand your ability to see him for who he is is directly related to who you think you are. You realize that? Your ability to see him for who he is is directly related to who you think you are. You realize human beings carry opinions about themselves? We all carry opinions about ourselves. Whether you say it out loud, write it down, post it, it's happening. We carry opinions about ourselves that shape, shape how you see the world around you and other people. You realize you don't actually live life seeing what is. We all think we do. I see it. You don't actually live life seeing what is. You live life perceiving how you think things are based on the filter that you have in place of who you think you are. Oh, it's happening all the time. And that's why people, I don't think I need to explain this to you much Massive conflict in the last two years, right? Massive upheaval. Have we ever been this divided? This has always been true about human beings. We carry opinions about ourselves that shape how we see the world and other people around us. But we've got corporations and social media that has put this on steroids now because they understand something I wish more of you knew. When you get online and you spend time with an article and they see, oh, that's how long you stayed on that article and you sent it to friends and you clicked that video and you watched it and you liked it and you, guess what they do? I wish more of you knew this. They send you more of the same. And so that what they already know you believe and like and think, they give you more of it. And then you just go down your little rabbit hole and land in your little echo chamber where all you're getting is data and articles and information that match what you think so that you think everyone else is an idiot for thinking anything else. How could they? But they're all getting a set of material and articles and facts completely different once they know what you like and all ready believe. This has been human nature from the very beginning. We carry opinions. So get this, you don't actually look at facts. You look at facts through the filters that you have in place. And one of our biggest mind-altering filters is our opinion of ourselves. That's what's going on in Luke 14 here. Look at verse 1 again. They were watching him carefully. You say, Brad, isn't that a good thing? We've, we've titled this whole series through Luke, See Jesus. I want you to see Jesus. I want you to look to Jesus and away from this world. I want you to hear Jesus. Problem? You need to realize this is two, two and a half years into his earthly ministry. We're way into the book of Luke now. He's only got like six months left on this earth. They have already decided what they think about Jesus. They've already concluded, judge, jury, verdict, done. They're not watching him to learn anything. They're not watching him to decide anything. They are watching him for anything that confirms what they already think and anything that they can point to to condemn him for how he doesn't match what they think he should be saying and doing. To confirm, to condemn, to confirm. You realize you can watch Jesus for all the wrong reasons? It's not are you looking to him. It's why are you looking to him. Are you looking to him to learn? 
Are you looking to him to let him inform you about you, the world, and himself? Or have you already decided and you are just looking for confirmation and condemnation? Confirmation and condemnation. Oh, but there's a second problem going on in this passage that still exists today. Not only their opinion of themselves, which they had decided, we don't need a savior. We don't need a savior. What are you talking about? See, these were the lawyers and the religious leaders. So they knew the Old Testament, but here's what they did. They'd gone through the Old Testament and cherry-picked any verses that had the tone of victory, conquer, throne, kingdom. And then timetable, now, right now. Right now. So they were holding him up to their standard and critiquing him for how far he fell short of being and doing what they thought the Messiah should do. That's why they rejected him. He's not doing what we think he should do. What did they want? They wanted him to kick out the Romans. Do you realize they were living under Roman oppression? The Romans were in their land ruling them. How fun would that be? They hated it, and so they wanted him to kick. They were looking for a revolutionary who would kick out the Romans, put them back in power, and solve their immediate earthly problem of oppression. Because in their minds, there's no heavenly problem between us and God. We're good. We're good on that. We don't need you doing that. The Old Testament was filled with places. I just read it yesterday in my own quiet time. Isaiah 53, they had it. How can you read Isaiah 53 and not see a suffering Savior who would die in our place? I'll tell you how. When you already have a filter, when you already have a filter, and you know what you're expecting, and therefore you just go looking for that. Opinion of themselves, expectations. Our opinion of ourselves and our expectations change how you see other people around you. But here's what I think is so interesting. It says they were watching him carefully. Guess what? He was watching them. The difference is he got it right. And he always gets it right. Because as he watched them, what he saw only confirmed what he already knew. Because he's not just looking at outward behavior. He can see the heart. What he already knew about the human heart and the human condition, our true condition that we're all born with. You say, Brad, what is that? Me! Me! You realize we're all born with a me monster? I want to promote me. I want to live for me. I want you to revolve around me. I want you to help me. I want you to get out of the way of me. I want you to affirm me. I want you to... Very few people say it that way, but it gets played out. Let me help you if you ever wonder, why is marriage so hard? Me! Because we all come into that she's going she's gonna to assist me. I'm going to keep doing everything I was doing, plus she's there to help me do it. I don't have to change anything. I don't have to lift her any. Now she lives for me and I live for me. Isn't this great? She's like, no, not so great. This is why roommates blow up. People start off best friends. I saw it all the time in college. We're best friends. Oh, let's room next semester. End of friendship. Oh, we're best friends. Let's go on a cruise and live in a tiny little room. End of friendship. This is why teams in the workplace struggle. This is why marriage struggles, roommate struggles, church family struggles. We all have by nature the me monster. It's like I live for me, me, me. He already knew and saw confirmation for what he knew about the human heart. That's point number two. His view of us, his view of us is constantly confirmed by what we choose and what we chase after in this world. You realize? His view of us is constantly confirmed by what we choose and what we chase after. Look at verse 7. Now he told a parable to those who were invited. When he noticed how they, say it, chose the places of honor. That just represents all of life. Take it outside of wedding banquets. The chose. And even though they understand this, how this system works, it's worth the risk. It's worth the risk to still put myself a little higher in hopes that the chose. Listen to me. He goes, so he goes on to give them, when he sees that, 
an earthly story that illustrates a spiritual problem. In other words, he uses something familiar to them. Because I hope you realize this passage is not news. Jesus did not give them a brand new banquet etiquette to consider. Hey, consider this. They had been raised in this culture. They knew the rules on banquet table etiquette. This was a Middle Eastern shame and honor culture. They absolutely, he's not bringing them anything they don't know about. Choose the lowest place and then you might be called up higher and you'll be honored. You take the high place, you might be shamed in front of everybody when he says, friend, give place to this man or woman. They knew all that. That's not news. He's taking something familiar, and this is what he does with parables, that they do know to drive home to them something they're completely blind to that they do not understand. You say, Brad, what is that? Who gets into heaven and how? On what basis? Who gets into the kingdom and how? On what basis? Who gets into the kingdom and how? On what basis? Because remember, I tell you all the time, parables are not a warm bedtime story with Uncle Jesus. Tell us a parable. Parables always addressed a problem. There's a problem, so there's a parable. Big problem, parable time. Parables were designed to be a stomach punch, a high kick in the head, a wake-up call to something that we're completely misunderstanding. And you got to realize here, it's not like, oh, your understanding of who gets into the kingdom, B plus, C minus, F, F, we completely misunderstand who gets into heaven and how. And so he tells a parable. He tells a parable to be a wake-up call, a kick in the head, that there's something essential, eternal, with huge consequences, heaven or hell, that you are misunderstanding. And so that leads to the main point of our passage. Verse 11 is the main point of the whole passage. I'm going to spend the rest of the time there unpacking for you a little more of what he's saying in verse 11. So point number three, our only hope for salvation is the radical reversal of the gospel. Our only hope for salvation is the radical reversal of the gospel. You need to realize the first step towards salvation. It's the first step that a man or woman has to take. First step towards salvation, you guys, is a radical reversal and a total upheaval of our natural born sinful instinct that says, I am basically, say it, good. I'm basically good. All of psychology teaches that. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. Here's what I think is so funny. Everybody acknowledges there's bad people. All you have to do is be alive. There was Hitler. There was the, we just never think we're one of them. Here's what I think is so funny. Read data on surveys of any kind, any survey. Every single person puts themselves above average. That will not work mathematically. Averages are, are created because there's people below average and people above average. But when people answer questions about themselves, they all put themselves above average. Now, we have enough sense that we don't say 10, but we choose things like six, seven. Because there are bad people out there somewhere. I'm just not one of them. Look at verse 11 again. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. He's not now talking about a wedding banquet. He's not now talking about table etiquette. They already understood all that. He is moving to something far more important and sobering and eternal. Who gets into the kingdom? Who gets into heaven? And how? How? On what basis? On what basis? How do you get in? And make sure you understand this. The person in verse 11 doing the humbling and the exalting is God himself. The person in verse 11 doing the humbling 
and the exalting is God himself. Because Jesus is giving them a picture of salvation now that ends in final judgment. There's going to be a judgment day, you guys, where you'll stand before Almighty God. You're going to stand before Almighty God. And he's going to determine whether you get in or not. And, and what human beings think is the basis of that is so not what God teaches. Not. Not. Well, I try to keep the Ten Commandments. I try to practice the golden rule. I try to treat people the way I'd want to be treated. I try to make a difference in this world. Please don't hear me saying, I don't care about that. It makes for a better society. I thank any person that answers me that way. Thank you. But then I tell them one of my favorite things to say is, do you know that good people go to hell? Well, then who goes to heaven? Let me tell you. We think good people are who get in. Oh, so Jesus right here, Jesus right here is moving from earthly table etiquette to a spiritual subject of great importance, eternal significance. You say, Brad... How do you know the crowd understood? Do you think the crowd understood that by verse 11, he had shifted from table etiquette to something? Oh, they knew exactly what he was doing, you guys. They knew. Because look at verse 15. Someone in the crowd, someone sitting in the crowd cries out, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the, say it, kingdom. You realize there's gonna be a wedding feast? Revelation talks about it. We, we are engaged. If you know Jesus Christ, you're engaged. He's your bridegroom. You're the bride. The Holy Spirit's your whopping engagement ring. Your, your pledge, your seal that you're called for. You're taken. He loves you. He's preparing a place for you. There's going to be the wedding supper of the Lamb. There's going to be an incredible wedding feast. And you need to understand, how do I get into that? How do I get into that wedding feast? How could I be there? That's what Jesus has shifted to now. He's talking about who gets in and who does not. And so Jesus right here, you guys, is putting his finger on what distinguishes the reality. It's the reality of what distinguishes Christianity from every other world religion. He's putting his finger right on it. What distinguishes Christianity from every other world religion? I'll tell you what it is. Jesus and Christianity are not all about discriminating between good and bad people, putting people in groups of good and bad people. You see, Brad, I know that passage where there's gonna be a day where he divides the goat from the sheep. Get this, sheep aren't good people and goats are bad people. Sheep are people who have humbled themselves regardless of how bad they are and said, I need a savior. Goats are people who've continued to say, I'm not that bad, I'm not that bad. I can do it. Tell me what to do. Jesus right here is putting his finger on what discriminates, what, how Christianity discriminates, not between good and bad people. Jesus and Christianity are all about discriminating between, ready? Humble people. Humble people who see their true condition as sinners in need of a Savior and proud people who cling to their own self-assessment and refuse to see their need for a savior and keep saying, but I'm not that bad. Tell me what to do. I'm not that bad. Tell me what to do. We tend to think, well, Brad, aren't there people who fall way more short? Hitler and others? Absolutely. But you realize the Bible teaches in Romans 3, 20, for how many fall short of the glory of God? Say it again. Raise your hand at all three campuses. All, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, some fall further short, but it really doesn't matter, right? It'd be like us playing the game. We're gonna, there's the Grand Canyon. Do you know how wide the Grand Canyon is at widest point? 18 miles. The average person can long jump six feet. There are people on record. Now, this is pretty amazing. There are people on record that have jumped 29 feet. That's almost five times longer than the average. But we line up, 
All of us average people who can jump six feet and the few men and women who've jumped 29 and we go at it and we launch out there. How many people die? Everybody. How many people fail to get to the other side? How many fall short? There's our condition. Some may be able to jump further and are choosing to do some better things than others, but God's word teaches all fall short and need a what? Savior. Not a system, a savior, not religion, a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so here's what you need to realize that Jesus is doing. Jesus is deconstructing their categories and overturning their religious systems that they have worked so hard to put in place, to practice, and to promote for others. And that is why they hated him. You realize they didn't hate him for feeding the 5,000. Do that again. People hate being exposed for who they really are and having their systems overturned. Never mind him flipping over the tables in the temple that one time. Oh, that, that's not what ticks people off the most. It's when they have their system that they're clinging to, trusting in, standing on, that affirms what they think about them, deconstructed and overturned, and they are exposed. They hate it, hate it, hate it, and they killed him for it. They didn't kill him for healing people, you guys. They didn't kill him for so many things he did. They killed him because he kept bringing this. You're a sinner and needed a savior. You'll never get in apart from the mercy of God. Come to me, all who are weary and over heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Come to me. Whosoever will, come, believe, believe. Why couldn't they believe? I'll tell you, it's not just a lack of faith. Most people struggle not because they have no faith, because they don't want to release what they're already trusting in. They're already trusting in something else that makes them feel better and makes more sense to them on a human level. You realize Jesus right here is saying salvation will never be found by those who think they can scramble for it, earn it, or push and shove their way in ahead of others because of their spiritual resume. Salvation, salvation comes to those who know they don't have it, know they can't earn it, know they don't deserve it, but come humbly saying, oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I need a savior. Listen to me, what Jesus did for us has to become something his spirit does in us. There has to be a prior work of the spirit, you guys, for this to ever sound like good news. If you're wondering, like, it's such good news, why don't more people, there's a problem, this self-assessment problem that we cling to. Until his spirit does a work in us, you will never be excited about what God did for us in his son. So I wanna talk about both. What did Jesus do for us? Go to Philippians chapter two. What did Jesus do for us? Go to Philippians chapter two. Man, I feel like I hear two Bibles. This is heartbreaking. Maybe just don't be so polite. Be noisy. Goodness gracious. Tell me there's Bibles in laps. I can hear some from other campuses. Maybe it's just Florence. Philippians two, verse five. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Oh my goodness. Realize we're living in a day where it's all about holding on to your rights. In fact, get more rights. What are my privileges? What are my rights? What should I have? Jesus 
who was equal to God, the Son of God, second person of the Trinity, did not continue to cling to his privileges and his rights as God, but set them aside. Did not count equality to God a thing to be grasped, but made himself, say it, nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, here it is, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, not just death, you guys, even death on a cross. Oh, I know we live in a day now, and I'm not saying it's wrong that you gotta get rid of it all. Where a cross is a piece of jewelry, a cross is something on the wall, a cross is some form of artwork. But you gotta understand the origin of this. A cross was hideous debasing, shameful. It meant you were cursed. Death on a cross, the Persians thought of it and the Romans perfected it. Was the most shameful, you were hung there naked, debasing, defiling, painful, drawn out form of execution human beings had ever thought of. It was designed to cause your death to be lingering for two to three days. Sometimes they were still alive and birds began to pluck out their eyes while they were still alive. It was horrific. He humbled himself and was willing to die even on a cross. Oh, but look what happened. In light of what he did for us, look what God does. Verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him. That's the same word in the Greek that we've got in Luke 14 and verse 11 with exalted. It's the word tapinu. But guess what's happening here? The word here is hyper tapinu. Do I need to help you understand what that means? Whenever they put the prefix hyper on the front of something, it meant, whoo, ramp it up superlative, superior. He has been hyper exalted. God has hyper exalted his son because no one else has done what he's done for us or could do. No one else has pleased the father like he has. Jesus has been hyper exalted by God the father so that at the name of Jesus, Every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is just a good teacher. Shout no. Shout wrong. Shout boo. So that Jesus Christ is, say it, Lord, to the glory of God the Father. There's what Jesus chose to do for us. While we were enemies, while we were outcasts, while we were sinners, while we were far from him, not, oh, he saw us moving towards him and making some good changes, so he did this. No, no. The one one who more than any other deserved to be in the most exalted seat chose the lowest so that we could be seated with him in the presence of the Father despite our sin, despite our filth, despite our weakness. Hallelujah, what a Savior. What a Savior. Oh, but there's more. Jump over to Romans chapter eight. Romans chapter eight. What is it that Jesus has done for us? Romans chapter eight, verse one. There is therefore now no condemnation. For those who are working hard with their system, trying to treat people the way they want to be treated, trying to keep the Ten Commandments, trying to make a difference in this world, shout no. Shout boo. For those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Look at me. The Ten Commandments, you guys, is a law of sin and death. The Ten Commandments show us that we're sinners. That's why God gave it to us. And what's the penalty? 
death. He says, you're a sinner, you fall short. What's the penalty? Death. The law brings us sin and death. You say, why would God do that? Is he mean? No, he's so good because he knows this problem we have. Until you see a standard that shows you who you really are, you'll never be interested in the good news. He knows we wake up every day thinking, I'm not that bad, I'm not that bad, I'm not that bad. Really? Check this out. At least people have enough sense to say to me, I try to keep the ten. Can anyone perfectly keep all the Ten Commandments? No. So the law shows you you're a sinner and says you're condemned. You're guilty. You're condemned. You're guilty. You're condemned. You're guilty. But hold on. Look at what's coming next. If you will embrace that, then, woo, verse 3, for God has, what's the word? Done. Look at me, you guys. No other religion uses this word. No other religion talks about done. It talks about do, do, do. Here's what you need to 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 do. Only Christianity talks about done, what God has done in his son. That is Christianity alone. The media loves to act like, oh, all religions are the same. Choose your flavor. Barf. They're not the same. This is distinctly different. Here's what God has done in his son for you that you could never do for yourself. Verse three, for what God has done, what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. Your sinful flesh could never have kept the law. Could not do. What the law weakened by the flesh could not do, God has done by sending His own son. He sent Jesus in a body to perfectly keep the law for us, to satisfy God's holy demands for us, to be a substitute for us. Verse six, he condemned sin in the flesh. He hung on the cross, you guys. And our sin, your sin was placed on him as if it was his. And God, holy God, poured out his wrath on Jesus and that sin as if it was his, but it was yours. He condemned sin in the flesh. He took the punishment. He drank the cup drive. He absorbed the wrath of God in our place. He condemned sin in the flesh so that what? What now is possible? Verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. When you put your faith in Jesus, Jesus' perfect keeping of the law, his perfect pleasing the Father, his perfect righteousness is applied to your spiritual account as if it is yours. Say thank you, Jesus. Oh my goodness. That is so much better than, oh, when you put your trust in Jesus Christ, your sin record is wiped out. Yes, it is. But it's not left empty. Then the righteousness of Jesus Christ is given to you as if it is yours. That's why the Father can sing over you. That's why you can run to the Father and come into his arms. That's why there's no condemnation. You don't have a zero record. You have a positive off the charts because all the righteousness of Jesus is now yours. And he never changes. The Father never changes his opinion of Jesus. So day and night, every day... God looks at you and sees the righteousness of Jesus. Jesus. That is like no other religion. None. None. Jump over to chapter 9. So what's the problem, Brad? Well, chapter 9 is going to begin to... That sounds like such good news, and it does to me, and it probably does to you if you're a Christian. What's the problem? Romans 9, beginning in verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. What's he saying? Look at me. The Jews were given the Ten Commandments. The Jews were God's chosen people. The Jews were the nation through which the Messiah was going to come. And yet they took the commandments and they thought, oh, we're supposed to keep these. This, we'll do our own righteousness, thank you very much. Gentiles who don't even know and don't have the Ten Commandments and we're not the chosen people have attained 
righteousness, and he's going to tell you how. He's going to tell you how here in a minute. What shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue it, the Jews were pursuing it based on law, have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by, say it. Say it louder. Faith. You don't earn it. You don't push and shove for it. You don't show your resume and they say, great. You don't check boxes by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by what? Faith. But as if it were based on, say it, works. This is, this is how we're wired, you guys. It's based on works. Tell me what to do. It's based on works, and I'll do it. Tell me what to do. This is not a problem that's gone away. This is still what human beings think. They thought it was based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. Now, he's, he's talking about Jesus. Here's what you need to understand. Jesus is either the cornerstone of your life, and you are resting on him. Your entire hope is based on him before God, or he's a stumbling stone because he's an offense. You're like, I'm not that bad. I don't need a savior. What are you talking about? I'm not that bad. No one's neutral, you guys. Jesus is either your cornerstone or he's a stumbling stone of offense. They stumbled over the stumbling stone as it's written, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer for God, for them, is that they may be saved. Paul's like, oh, I want the Jews to be saved. I want my own nation to be saved. I want them to be right with God. I want them to get in the kingdom. I want them to go to heaven. Verse two, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. Do you realize you can be zealous about religious things? I hear it all the time. Well, I believe in God. Great. That doesn't get you into heaven. They had zeal for God, just for the wrong stuff, wrong stuff. Why? Wrong opinion of themselves to begin with, wrong expectations led to a wrong conclusion. Zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. In other words, they're not listening to what God's saying. They're not understanding what God's saying. They're zealous, but they're not listening, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God, oh, look at this, and seeking to establish their, say it, own. God offers righteousness in his son. But they're ignorant of that because they're so busy establishing their own. Establish their own. They did not submit to God's. You realize this is the problem. When I share the gospel, sometimes someone will say to me, it can't be that easy. And I'll push back and I'll say, uh... It's not easy. It's simple enough for a child to understand, but here's what's not easy about it. You have to to agree with his assessment of you. That's not easy. That you're a sinner in need of a savior and you could never, ever save yourself. Then you submit to what he's done because you're done with what you think you need to do. That's not easy. That's not easy. They did not submit to God's righteousness for Christ is the end of the law for everyone who believes. End doesn't mean obliterated, wiped out, laws done. It means fulfilled. Christ fulfills all the law's demands so that now you put your faith in him and you are right with a holy God. You have peace with God. You are in the family of God. He gives you his spirit He gives you a robe of righteousness. He changes your eternal destiny. That's what God has done in his son. But let me show you what his spirit has to do in you first. Jump over to Philippians 3. Philippians chapter 3. This is Paul's own testimony, you guys. Paul the apostle's testimony about what had to happen to him first before it even sounded like good news. You realize there has to be a heart change, a spirit work before this gospel of good news even sounds like good news. Philippians chapter three, Paul. For we are the circumcision. He's saying, we're the Jews 
who worship by the Spirit of God in glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. He's saying, now that I know Christ by faith, I understand you can't put any confidence in the flesh. Before I had confidence in the flesh, what I can do, put no confidence in the flesh. Now he's writing and speaking to people who are making the mistake of putting confidence in the flesh. And so he's going to go sarcastic here and say, you want to play that game? You want to see who has much, the most reason to put confidence in their flesh? I had tons. I had tons of reason to trust in me. Watch what he does. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Verse five, circumcised on the eighth day as every good Jewish boy should be, of the people of Israel. I was born into the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm not just in the crowd. I'm ahead of the crowd. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. That's that group he's speaking to in Luke 14. Pharisee, the word Pharisee literally means separate. We're separate from everybody else. We're so ahead. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Now there's a distinction between religion and Christianity. It's a relationship. You know Jesus You're in relationship with him. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Let me help you there. That word rubbish in the Greek is skibala. Guess what it is? It's something you step in in the front yard if you have dogs. (laughs) Literally, it meant excrement, refuse. Old King James said dung. Poop. I count it all as poop excrement, everything I was trusting in will not get it done. It stinks and it will not get you into the kingdom. How do you get in? Verse nine, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. Not that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God. So you gotta get a righteousness from God and he's ready to give it to you. The righteousness that comes from God that depends on, how do you get it? Faith. It has to be an alien righteousness from outside of you that's given to you and you only get it by faith. You don't earn it. You don't work for it. It's a gift. It's a free gift. It's a free gift. Verse nine makes it absolutely clear. Two big questions every human being has to wrestle with. How do I get true righteousness? From God, you'll never generate it. On what basis, how does it become mine? By faith in Christ. And please know, this is not like, oh wow, Jewish leaders back then were making a huge mistake. You realize people are trapped in this today. People think this way today. People struggle this way today. People are on their way to hell today because of this same problem. A young man in our church family sent me an email in the last couple years, and I have his permission to read some of it. How he grew up inside the church, you guys, doing all the right things, but was still not a Christian and dead, spiritually dead. He says, I grew up in the midst of Christianity, attending a large Baptist church, I'd been sitting through adult services, Bible studies, and seminars since I could walk. When I was five, I responded to an altar call. I know we don't do it, but a lot of churches are like, at the end of the service, they sing just as I am forever and say, come, come forward if you want to get saved. And you have to walk the aisle and shake the pastor's hand. He did it. He went forward. He did that thing you're supposed to do. I I responded to the altar call at five, said a prayer, and got baptized the following Wednesday. As a teenager, I sat through chapels at my Christian school, listening to guest speakers teach the Bible, and the Holy Spirit kept bringing me back to this question, am I really saved? Am I really right with God? It was an uncomfortable question that I hated facing, and so I'd brush it under the rug, or I'd face it and say, I read my Bible, I go to church, I try to obey God, I'm okay. Like the Apostle Paul, I was incredibly religious, and self 
righteous. And yet for all of it, I couldn't see the hypocrisy in myself. I was filled with bitterness, anger, depression, and joylessness. Often I'd come away from being around certain Christians agitated that they could be so happy. And I was left restless that I I could see a difference between them and myself, but I wasn't able to put my finger on it. One Sunday, our pastor preached a sermon about using the scriptures to examine your life, and it gripped me. He challenged us to look deeper into our hearts than we've ever been willing and let Christ have a chance to address what we find there. I hesitantly took the offer, and the Holy Spirit revealed my heart to me in a way I'd never seen before. I spent a week in dark despair that I could barely eat, sleep, or function. I obsessed over my sin and couldn't stop thinking about it. It terrified me. But then I began to read the Gospel of John, desperately trying to see or find anything that might give me hope, anything I'd looked over in my life, all the while obsessing over how sinful I was and begging God to spare my life. Shortly after that, God brought me to believe in the existence of Jesus, his sacrifice, and to trust in it. Now, do you hear what just happened? He already knew there was a Jesus. So now, oh, there's Jesus? Can you believe in Jesus, understand all the details of the cross, and still not actually be trusting in that for yourself? Scary answer, yes. And to trust in it. Oh, I know that salvation and faith are not feelings, but I can only describe what happened to me next as being like drowning almost to the point of death below the surface and then suddenly being released as the despair and fear were lifted and I experienced life in my heart for the first time. I Listen to this. I'd read the entire Bible on my own by the time I was 12. Some of you have never done that. But you're born again. You don't have to do that to be born again. He'd done it and he was still lost. I had memorized the second most number of verses in all of Awanas. He had little patches all over his shirt. I was homeschooled and went to Christian school. Oh, wow. We didn't listen to rock and roll, and I, we weren't allowed to watch Disney or Pokemon. Oh, my goodness. Surely that'll get you in. Hmm, no. But I wasn't a Christian. I was religious and dead. But God, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus took out the heart of stone and gave life to an over-churched, religious, Bible-thumping hypocrite who was just as dead as any unbeliever. I am who I am now by God's mercy and nothing else. That sounds like the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 1 where two times he says, but I received mercy. Here's the difference. When you're saved by the righteousness of God through faith in Christ, you talk about what God has done. You don't talk about what you're doing. He said, oh, I received mercy. I received mercy. I want to close by asking you to bow your heads. I want to ask you, what do you have today? Where do you stand in relationship with God? What do you have? Where do you stand in relationship with God? Maybe for the first time you need to say, oh God, never mind repenting of horrible things you've done. Some of you need to repent of your good works, of your self-assessment, of your self-righteousness. And maybe for the first time ever, say, oh God, I come as nothing but a sinner in need of a savior. Save me. Change me from the inside out. Give me your righteousness by faith alone. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.